Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, Certified Religious Transition and Trauma Recovery Coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast, everyone. I am thrilled today to have Rachel from Post-Mormon Parenting here with me to talk about raising kids with ethics, whether you're in religion or outside of religion. I know this was a huge question for me whenever I was first leaving Mormonism. I really spent like two weeks in crisis wondering how I was going to raise kids that had ethics and morals, how I was going to help them navigate finding their values, how I was going to help them not become delinquents, which is what I was told was going to happen. And I really spent a lot of time worrying and crying and just feeling so anxious about what was going to happen. And so when I found Rachel's resources, it really was a big help to me and a big comfort to me. And it really kind of gave me a roadmap to figure out where I wanted to go with my kids and how I wanted to help them develop values and just gave me this sense of hope that parenting great kids without religion was possible, which I know those of you who are raised without religion that are listening to this podcast already know, but I had been raised without that understanding. And so she was such a comfort to me and also such a great guide. And so I'm so excited to have her on the podcast. So she says that she creates content with the goal of providing resources and support for parents who formerly were members of the Mormon church. She shares her content across YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. She says she's not a parenting expert, but she shares her journey learning how to parent her children outside of the paradigm of religious belief. And believe me, you guys, she is amazing at what she does. She explains information so well. And I have appreciated her so much because she, like me, loves to research and she loves to disseminate what she's learned in a way that really just makes sense and is easy to understand. If you want to go and find more from her, she is at Post Mormon Parenting on YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and we'll put her email in the show notes as well. So without further ado, I'm so excited to welcome Rachel to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. Thank you so much. I am so glad to be here. And thank you so much for that fabulous introduction. I am just getting a little bit bashful now. I am so glad to be here. I remember feeling the same kinds of things when I left the church. I thought, oh my gosh, how am I going to help my kids not become like mired in sex and drugs and alcohol by the time they're like 12 or 13 years old? And, you know, lots of worst case scenario going on in my brain. But I also, just cannot raise them in the church. So what am I going to do? So I'm glad to be able to share with other people the things that I have found. I, like you, just loved research. And what I found was contrary to what I had been believing this whole time, there's actually a ton of resources available for us. So much good research and scientific data, evidence-based stuff to show that we can be really, really successful raising kids outside of our Mormon framework. And 
give them a really good sense of ethics and morality. So yeah, I'm glad to be able to be kind of like a, a guidepost for people to kind of point them in, in the directions that can be most helpful and share the things that I've discovered along the way. Absolutely. I love that. I have to ask you, how did you get into this research in the first place? So you had a faith crisis. Were you into parenting and researching parenting before leaving the church? Or was this something that happened as part of your journey, your faith transition? So, yes, I'm going to go back in time a little bit. When I was in college, I went to BYU. And while I was there, I studied psychology. So, I think like the nature of being human, what goes on in our psyches, child development, human development, adult development, all of that has always been super fascinating to me. And I feel like that is such like the final frontier, you know, as far as research goes. And I'm just, I've always had this burning curiosity for everything relating to psychology. So while I was taking my classes, I got a job during my junior and senior year working as an ABA therapist. ABA stands for Applied Behavior Analysis. So my experience as an ABA therapist, we were taught how to apply this um, operant conditioning model for teaching children. And there's two kinds of conditioning. There's operant conditioning, classical conditioning. Operant conditioning says that if there is a stimulus and then a response and then a consequence. And that's how we train people. But I got really, really good at it. And we were all working under the very, very close, almost constant supervision of a psychologist who was trained in this method. And by the time I left, I left because I was had graduated and I was moving away. And so I came away with this feeling that like, wow, I am so lucky. I got to have this really great training and become really good at it. So when I do have kids, I can apply this with them. Also, this will be a really, really great tool in my toolbox for teaching my kids. And I didn't have kids until about six years after that. And when my first, uh, my son, when he was old and like a year and a half, two years old enough to understand, like there's expected behavior. When you spill something, you got to pick it up. You know, I started implementing this, you know, he might spill the Cheerios and I'd say, okay, you have to pick up the Cheerios. He doesn't do it. And I say, nope. Let's try again. And I, I used this operant conditioning with him. And I mean, it, it was fine at, at first, but as he grew, like my system didn't grow with him and it caused a lot of outbursts. And I thought, well, I just have to double down and be better at what I'm doing. And, um, and I'm giving him lots of love and empathy too, and explaining what's happening. But I just, I, I developed this idea that obedience to me and my authority over him was primary. This mm -hmm. was our number one thing that he needed to understand in these early formative years that I had this authority over him and he needed to obey me in everything. Now, I'm not saying that there's no place for that in a home of parents, especially when you have little children, obviously, like there has to be a degree of that, but that shouldn't have been my primary driving force. And I think because it was, I had a lot of missed opportunities and we had a lot of, I think, traumatic meltdowns that he still remembers today. And I still remember today. And, um, he does suffer from anxiety. And I think a lot of it traces back to the way that I was parenting. And so I could see there's a problem here and doubling down on my experience was not helping. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And so I knew I had to change something. And so I started looking into different kinds of parenting. I wasn't really getting anywhere, just being curious, right? Just asking a lot of questions. And then when my oldest was six years old, I went through my faith crisis. And finally, I think just over time up to that point, I had broken down this idea that like my authority is primary and he just needs to learn to obey me, you know? And so I think by that time I had kind of broken that down. And then my faith crisis was like, breaking it down all the way till there was nothing left of that understanding that's not what I want and that's not good for him and that's not healthy. And uh, so I started really trying to expand my horizons. I started reading about Buddhism. I started reading about um, raising children without religion. And so that's, I think what really drove my desire to become a better parent and realize I didn't know how and the church wasn't helping. And so I needed to find that in, in other areas. Something that I love that you bring up, first of all, is that you had a beginner's mindset, I think is what it's called in Buddhism, even like mm-hmm. the, the beginner's mindset of coming to it and being like, what I thought I knew isn't working. And so I'm going to approach this as if maybe I don't know anything. And you just allowed yourself to consume information and find what fit and what felt good for you and your life and what you felt might be something you wanted to try with your kids. So what has happened since then, as you've delved into all of these different methods and you've tried them at home, how has that turned out in your home? You know, I'm getting a little bit choked up because of just thinking about where we were and how far we've come. So yesterday, my son, right, he's got anxiety and sometimes his emotions can be really, really big. And if I'm already dealing with really big emotions myself, then it feels too overwhelming to help him deal with his. And so I had made dinner. He did not like what I had made and wanted something else. And he started having a panic attack about it. He was hyperventilating. He was thrashing his body a little bit, not hurting anybody, not trying to be destructive or whatever, but just having an anxiety attack about it. And I, this is like at the end of the day, right? I've made dinner. (laughs) I've done a lot up to this point and I had to excuse myself. And I said, I need to go have a mommy timeout. I need to go have uh, some alone time so I can just take some deep breaths. So I did, I went and had my alone time. He came in after a few minutes. I don't think he really understood like mommy, why did you abandon me kind of thing when I was having a hard time, but he was able to recognize that he had been having big feelings and that mommy had been having big feelings. And he said, mom, I don't understand why that was too much for you, but I see that it was, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I had that really big reaction. And I'm sorry that that was too much for you. And he gave me a hug. And I think what would have happened years ago was I might've like, well, I'm the mom and I laid down the law and I made this for dinner. You have to sit and eat it. And that would have, you know, erupted in this big tantrum. And I would have made more rules about it. And then consequences, if you don't keep these rules, and then he would have ended up in his room and it just, you know, it would have lasted a long time. It really would have escalated really quickly. Instead, we were both able to recognize our own emotional needs, take time to address those needs. And he was able to recognize 
I think a little better what was happening as well. And even come and apologize to me for it. And then we were able to very calmly and I think even like happily together, go up back into the kitchen and make a plan because he was calm enough and I was calm enough that our minds could work more clearly. Now we can think a little more clearly and, and create a plan about what we were going to do about what he was going to eat for dinner. That alone shows how much work you've done. The fact that he could recognize that he was having big feelings, that he could recognize that in you shows empathy, that you were having big feelings. The fact that you were able to take a break and he knew that taking a break meant, you know, I'm I'm here trying to calm my nervous system and get back in touch with myself and allow myself to come back online with my human brain, not just in, you know, my amygdala in my amphibian brain, that he recognized that whole thing shows how much you've practiced it and that he is developing empathy and the ability to understand what that might be like for someone else. And just that language. Mm -hmm. I don't understand why that was too much for you, but I can see that it was. And I'm sorry. Can we talk about it? That's huge. That's huge. I just imagining him as an adult being able to do that as well, which sets the tone to be able to then have a conversation where you can calmly plan and decide what do we want to do from here and how do we want to go forward? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Another thing that we've really been able to improve upon is this idea of adultism, right? Like I'm the adult. And so you do what I say and my feelings and my ideas and my thoughts and my big emotions are more pressing or more urgent or more important than yours. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where I was coming from all those years ago. So this example shows that we are equals in that way. Yes, I'm your mom. I get the final say. I get to force you to go to school when you don't want to go to school. It's the law, you know. But when it comes down to the daily living about my feelings versus your feelings and my opinions and your ideas, that we are equals in that way. And that just makes life so much easier and makes him feel better. And it's healthier for him and all my kids when they can feel like they are growing up in that kind of healthy environment. Yeah. They feel seen, they feel heard, they feel like their feelings matter and that they're taken into account and they're learning that your feelings matter and that your feelings need to be taken into account as well. So they're getting to learn that they matter and that what they're experiencing deserves care and attention. And the same for you, because Mm -hmm. I grew up in a household where my mother's feelings felt like the only ones that mattered. And so I did the opposite where I wasn't allowed to have feelings as a mom. Mm. And so if someone said or did something upsetting to me or something that triggered me or something that made me feel angry or sad, I would swallow it and then just care for other people. And so we've done, we've kind of gone the opposite way where being able to even express that I'm upset or that I'm angry or that my feelings are hurt has been a huge learning curve for all of us. And it has helped us have healthier relationships where it's okay that mommy gets sad. It's okay that mom, you know, gets her feelings hurt or is angry sometimes or frustrated or overwhelmed that all of those things get to be okay because I'm human just like they are. And 
it's really brought us closer and it sounds like it's brought you closer too. Definitely. We have way fewer outbursts and tantrums among all three of my kids and myself as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I love that we're able to look at things more clearly now and interact with our children in a much more healthy way saying like we are equals and all of our feelings and thoughts and ideas and emotions, they're all valid equally instead of, you know, how I used to be and how you used to be. And I think the church really did a disservice when it taught us that we needed to put other people's needs above our own, whether that's children thinking about their parents or parents thinking about their children, either one of those is not healthy mm-hmm. and it's not good for having empathetic relationships. Instead, it's better, I think, to see us all as equals. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I think when you have a parent where their feelings are the only ones that matter, that creates disconnection. Mm -hmm. And when you have a parent that, you know, is just giving and never getting to express theirs, I felt so much resentment towards my children and towards Mm -hmm. my husband and towards anyone else in my family that I felt like I had to swallow feelings for and that doesn't create connection either. So now that we get to be fully feeling humans who get to meet each other with empathy and with understanding, we get to connect deeper because there is no deep connection without empathy and without the ability to be vulnerable with one another. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love this. So in some of your videos on YouTube, because you were so kind and sent me some of your favorite videos that you had already produced on this topic of raising children with ethics, raising ethical children, I should say, you talked about two books, Parenting Beyond Belief and Raising Free Thinkers. And I'm just curious because I know my listeners are always looking for more resources. What do you love about those books for teaching kids ethical principles, whether you're inside the church or outside the church or a different religion now or just whatever? Yeah. So these are excellent, excellent resources. So Parenting Beyond Belief is the first book. And then Raising Free Thinkers is a companion book to that. It's called The Practical Guide for Parenting Beyond Belief. So in it, they answer a lot of questions that people have asked as a result of the first book. So it's really clarifying, really gives a lot of specifics and examples. So if you can only buy one, get Raising Free Thinkers. Because for me, seeing the specifics and examples really, really helps drive the point home and helps me remember things too. It's so much easier to remember when there's a story to go along with it. Yes. And it's written by a group of authors. And I especially love how they share research. It's not just like somebody writing, well, in my personal experience, or this is what we have observed This is like, they have citations for so many things and they reference so many good studies that have been done. And I love that. It's very, very concrete examples and and things like that. So I definitely highly recommend them as, as resources for people. I find that I'm really drawn to empirical research as well, especially since going through a faith transition, because for me, like I, I want facts, I want evidence Um, My listeners here know that I'm constantly reading academic journals and things like that. I love looking to see what the research is showing. For me, it gives me a little bit of peace of mind and it makes me feel like, okay, this has been widely studied and this is probably a healthy thing to try on and see if it fits for my life. Yeah. 
Yes, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. So I know that earlier we were talking about parenting styles and how they have a lot to do with raising ethical children. So I'd love to have a discussion about that. What types of parenting do you feel are more likely to help children develop empathy and become actively altruistic? And how can we self-evaluate which camp our parenting style falls into? Because I think a lot of us were raised with unhealthy parenting styles, not because our parents were bad people, but because we just didn't have the research to understand how to do it any differently. I think a few people stumbled onto healthy parenting styles by accident, but I think typically we were often raised with unhealthy parenting styles. So I'd love to talk about that and how that affects raising children with ethics. Yeah, absolutely. So going back to how I used to parent, we would call that a very authoritarian parenting style. This is, I'm the adult, I'm your adult. And what I say goes, I am your authority and you just have to do everything that I say. And to build on examples of that, to, to really make this clear about what this kind of parenting looks like, uh, there is a YouTuber called Telltale, and he used to be a Jehovah's Witness, and uh, he's not anymore. But he talks about his dad, who used to be extremely authoritarian, and his dad would give him really arbitrary things like stand up, now sit down, now stand up, now sit down just as a matter of practicing obedience, strict obedience. And we see this a lot on missions too, unfortunately, where, where uh, Mormon kids go on missions and they're, it's drilled into their heads over and over and over by their mission president that obedience to all of the mission rules will bring you blessings. Obedience is the first law of heaven. And it's even better, it's best if you can have unquestioning obedience, you know, like we learn about Adam and Eve, they went after they were cast out of the garden of Eden and they sacrificed some animals and an angel came and said, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? And Adam said, I don't know. I was just commanded to do so. And that story is held up as a great example of what we should be doing, unquestioning obedience to the rules that we were given from the person who is in this moral authority over us. Absolutely. And you see the opposite in the story of Thomas, where Thomas doubts and he has questions and he's not just falling right in line and believing that, you know, Jesus has been resurrected and that he's there. He has questions about that. That doesn't make logical sense to him. And he's really berated almost in the Bible. Not almost. He is berated in the Bible for being a doubter, for having questions, for not believing it just because someone said it was true. And mm -hmm. it's interesting because I remember hearing being a doubting Thomas is kind of a derogatory slur a lot growing up. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Excellent point. So on the opposite end of our parenting spectrum, right, as opposed to authoritarian, uh, is authoritarian. And that's a lot more where I am right now. An authoritative kind of parenting means that you explain to kids what are the reasons behind what you're asking them to do. And you don't expect them to obey unquestioningly. You expect them to ask you questions about why they have to do what you're telling them to do. You want to get them on board and show them that there are really good reasons for why you tell them to do what you tell them to do. 
So authoritative parents put a lot of emphasis on induction or reasoning, and they are responsive to and understanding of their child's point of view. If something doesn't make sense to my kid, I want to explain it to them so that it does make sense. There's nothing that they can't question me on. There's nothing that they can't doubt about what I'm telling them. And I want them to be able to practice that. That's a great skill that I want them to be working on now and have for their entire life. So can I just like interject for just a minute? That like gave me chills because my kids are headed into the teenager zone. I don't know what ages your kids are. My kids are eight, six, and four. Okay. And mine are 14 and 10. So they're like in that teenager or heading into the teenager zone. And so we have had some conversations where I'm like, look, you don't come with a manual. I'm figuring out what I'm doing. We're trying things on. We're using growth mindset in this parenting thing, which means I'm going to get it wrong a lot of the time. I'm happy to compromise. If something doesn't feel fair, I'm happy to like hear your side of the story. I'm happy to find something that works for both of us. So if there's ever something that we ask you to do that you hate, please have a conversation with us so that we can sit down and hear why it's not working for you. And we'll explain why we were thinking that that might be a good thing and what our worries or concerns are. And we'll find something that works for both of us. And we practice this a lot in family meetings now where we sit down and say, what isn't working for you right now currently in the family? And I get to also say, what isn't working for me? If the toilets are not being cleaned, that does not work for me living in a house full of boys. That does not work for me. (laughs) So we get to come together, bring our concerns and say, what isn't working and then problem solve together. And find something that is a win-win for everybody involved. So what you were just talking about, I was like, yes, it has been a big game changer in our family. That is so huge. And that brings me to another point about conflict resolution under authoritarian parents and really authoritarian systems and organizations. Their conflict resolution techniques are going to be everybody else's opinions need to be quiet and you just listen and do what I say. That's it. When the prophet speaks, the thinking has been done, that kind of idea. Or when your parent speaks, the thinking has been done. You just fall in line and do what I say. And that's their version of conflict resolution, which we understand leads to resentment and doesn't really solve the matters at heart. Now, under authoritative parenting, your conflict resolution is going to look like what you described, where we're all going to come together. Each person will say what they want or what they need. And then we're going to come up with a plan together that meets all of those wants and needs. Because again, we're all equals here. There's not this authoritarian hierarchy. And so we need to come up with a plan that we can all live with. Well, and I find that when we present kids and adults, even with that opportunity to have a free voice to explain what works and doesn't work for them. We also gather more information from people. We get to gather how things are landing with different people and different people's experiences. People are more free to share what they're experiencing without shame, without fear. And it just makes it better for all of us. It Mm -hmm. just makes the whole experience and the way the organization, whether it's a family or a church, just work that much more efficiently because 
everybody feels free to say, hey, this isn't working. This is my insight. There's no fear and shame there getting in the way of being able to move forward and innovate and create new solutions. Yes, I love that. And that also brings up another good thing that happens in authoritative organizations and systems and families. And that is that everybody has curiosity and we get to be curious. Why is my kid acting this way? What do they need? What's behind this? Why am I feeling this way? What do I need? What's behind this? How can we resolve that? Well, how can we meet everybody's needs? Whereas in an authoritarian kind of system, there's not really much curiosity. I see my kids are being disobedient and I need to squash that right now. Mm-hmm. I need to nip that in the bud. And, or sometimes we come up with the idea, well, they are being disobedient because they are being influenced by the devil or his mm-hmm. angels or or the the natural man or the worst side of their character. And so I need to squash that now in order to build up their character, which obviously doesn't work. No, it leads to so much trauma. So many of my clients talk about their parents. I mean, from across a wide range of different religions, um, talk about their parents using the Christian idea, at least of sparing the rod and spoiling the child of feeling like they need to either emotionally or physically beat the natural man or the devil or whatever out of their child and make them, make them godly by making them comply. Right. And it is, that is one of the biggest pieces of trauma that I find that people face is this idea that first of all, who they are as a human is somehow wrong or bad Mm-hmm. And that making mistakes or not understanding or having questions makes them not a good person. And then to have that added that added trauma on top of it of being shamed or berated or physically harmed because mm-hmm. they were human and they were learning and they were developing normally as a human being, which mm-hmm. kind of brings me to something I wanted to ask you about you in one of your YouTube videos, you talked about how children arrive at, let me read this really quick, Mm -hmm. how children arrive at a sense of morality reliably and on time, regardless of what their parents do or don't do, whether they're raised with or without religion. Mm -hmm. And then you Mm -hmm. said, except with one big exception, which is indoctrination. And so I want to talk about children's development, how we naturally develop, but then how indoctrination kind of hinders that moral development. Absolutely. Thank you. So what you talked about was actually uh, discovered by a researcher from the, what's called the Office for Studies in Moral Development at the University of Illinois, Chicago. The lead researcher on the team was Larry Nucci. And he said, like you said, children tend to come to these moral developments reliably and on time, regardless of what religion they're raised in or in no religion, except there's one thing, there's one thing that parents can do that impede their children's moral development And it's worse than doing nothing. It actually impedes their moral development, and that is indoctrination. So the definition of indoctrination is telling your kids, here's this something, here's this moral thing, and they don't get to question it. It's this very, again, authoritarian kind of way. You're telling them, this is just how it is. I said what I said. You do what I say because I'm the parent, and, um, and you don't get to question that. 
we see this all the time in religious upbringings, especially in our own Mormon upbringings, where there was a lot of things taught that were just indoctrination. This is like, well, God's ways are not man's ways. God's thoughts are not man's thoughts. You can't even begin to understand. So like, don't even, don't even bother trying to ask why this thing doesn't make sense at all. And now to help us understand indoctrination even further, we're going to compare that with the opposite of indoctrination, which is education. And education is when you teach a kid something, but you invite them to use their critical thinking skills about it. You know, birds fly. Uh, let's use our critical thinking skills. Why do they fly? How do they fly? How can we discover it? Do they really fly? Can we tell? And we help them have the tools along the way for them to be able to do a lot of self-discovery and see, is what my mom telling me about birds? Is that really true? And how can I figure that out on my own? So that is just hugely, hugely important. And um, I wanted to quote Marvin Berkowitz. He's a professor of character education at the University of Missouri. And he says the most useful form of character education encourages children to think for themselves. So again, we want them to have that burning curiosity. We want them to be skeptical about what they hear. We want them to be critical thinkers and to be able to think for themselves and not feel like they have to rely on somebody outside of themselves for moral guidance and moral education and someone that's just going to tell them what to do all the time. And to really drive this point home about how important this is, I want to share something from a book called The Altruistic Personality by lead researchers Samuel and Pearl Oliner. I'm not sure if it's Oliner, Oliner. I think it's Oliner. The owners conducted over 700 interviews with survivors of Nazi-occupied Europe, and they divided their interviewees into two groups. There were the rescuers and the non-rescuers. So the rescuers were people who took an active role in rescuing people who were being persecuted by uh, the Nazi regime. And then the non-rescuers, people who took a passive role or just didn't do anything, or even who were actively taking a part in that persecution. And what they found was among the two groups, there were significant differences in the ways that they were parented. And for the group of non-rescuers, surprise, surprise, they were 20 times more likely to have been raised in a family where there is a very authoritarian kind of parenting. Whereas the rescuers group, they were more likely to describe their parents' style of being really warm and inviting uh, thought-provoking questions. They said that their parents would reason with them and explain things to them when they were communicating rules and ethical concepts. So we want our kids to become like that. We want them to become rescuers. We want them to stand up for what's right and uh, help people who are being marginalized and brutalized even that's what we want to do for them. We want to give them that burning curiosity. We want them to be able to question whoever's in charge at the time. And we want them to develop this good sense of empathy for other people because they have all this curiosity. They're saying, why, why are those people this way? Why am I this way? And that can help them have compassion for people who are indeed suffering and help them be able to stand up for them. Mm. I had never heard that before, that those who would have empathy and be altruistic 
would be the ones that were taught curiosity and the ones that are taught to question authority and to be curious and that those maybe who might be more quiet when they see awful things happening or even actively participate we're taught not to question authority and we're just taught to fall in line and obey. It's the thing that they want most is obedience. And like you said, even better if it's unquestioning obedience. And then for the authoritative style, it's more of curiosity and exploration is what comes up for me too. So curiosity, Mm -hmm. exploration, questions, yeah, critical thinking, and that nothing is off the table to question. So yeah, this is I think this is something that a lot of us are looking for. And I think this is the reason sometimes we struggle is because when we've come from an authoritarian religion Mm -hmm. and sometimes with authoritarian parents on top of that, many of us fall into that group where we were taught to not question, to just obey unquestioningly. And we may have even spent the first half of our lives parenting our children in that way. And so to leave our religion behind and to question ourselves already feels scary and sometimes shameful. Mm -hmm. And then to teach our children to do that can also feel like additionally scary and shameful. And Mm -hmm. it's great to hear this research that actually it's that act of questioning. It's that act of being curious that leads us to be more empathic, altruistic, kind, less likely to be influenced by authoritarian leaders or cult leaders Mm -hmm. and more able to come up with, I think, our own solutions and our own ideas. And that's what we need in order to find big solutions for some of the big problems in our world today, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. And because we're being curious about ourselves, we're allowing ourselves to be curious about other people. And that helps us to validate what they've come to and their conclusions. And when we're able to do that, say, I, I appreciate what I've come to. I appreciate what you've come to. Now we can synergize and work even better together at problem solving really big problems. Yeah, that is huge. I am, I mean, my mind is over here just melting a little bit with all the information. I'm like, this is, this is big. Yes. I think so many of us, this is what we're looking for when we're parenting our kids. We want kids who can empathize and can think for themselves and can be innovative and vulnerable and authentic. And it sounds like encouraging that questioning and that curiosity is the method that we do this. Absolutely. It's, it's so interesting and ironic. I think that the thing that we were taught was most important, which is unquestioning obedience to rules turns out to be the single least productive thing we can possibly do for raising our kids. Absolutely. Well, and the whole point of religion, at least the way I was taught was to learn to love your neighbor, learn to bring good things into the world and to love and accept people and to help them feel God's love Mm -hmm. and to be a conduit for that. And it sounds like that unquestioning obedience became a real blockage to being able to do that. Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. So this kind of leads me to my next question. I love this. Like our, our conversation is just naturally flowing. This is fantastic. How do we help children tap into their own values? So if we're helping children develop a sense of moral self, my guess is that they're going to have their own sense of moral values. So how do we help them tap into those and then give language to them because we can't live by values that we can't give language to? 
So how do we help them tap into their values, give language to them, and then live according to their own moral values? How do we go about that process? So I think the most difficult part for me was transitioning out of this idea of rewards and punishments for training my kids into what they need to do. It's really, really hard to let go of that. And I think there is still a place for natural consequences. You know, if you, if you're not cleaning up your Legos, like you say you will, and they're all over the middle of the floor, we're all stepping on them. Then I'm going to take away your Legos, right? Like that's a natural logical consequence. So I think there's still a time and a place for consequences, not necessarily arbitrary punishments because you didn't do what I said, because you didn't listen to me, uh, but because there's like deeper reasons for what's happening. So as I'm still trying to transition out of like that mindset that there's just always a reward and punishments for everything. What I found that's really helpful again, from this book about raising free thinkers is what's called the five E's of humanist discipline. And I'm going to read through the list real quick, and then we'll go back and talk about each one. So the five E's example, explanation, encouragement, empathy, and engagement. So example, I think this one's kind of obvious. We model the behavior we want them to be doing. I model speaking. I model this language of I'm having big feelings right now. I need a mommy timeout. I need to take some deep breaths and ground myself or whatever the language is that you want to be using at home. I model that language for them. And after a while, they'll be able to adopt that language themselves and be able to use that. I model this behavior for them. I model how my process is of having empathy for someone. I model my own curiosity. Wow, I see this thing just happened. I wonder why this person reacted the way that they did. I wonder why your sister said the thing that she did. Why do you think she reacted that way? We ask the question. So number one is example. Number two is explanation. I'm not going to tell my kids, we just don't touch the stove. You just don't touch it. You know, this one's kind of obvious when I use this example, but I think it gets less obvious with time when things are a little bit more complex. Like we just don't have sex. That's it. You just don't have sex till you're married. You know, it's abstinence only education time. When we offer kids explanations, then they're able to get on board with it. See that there is a good reason. And figure things out within themselves about how that speaks to them. Like, is that part of my values? Is that important to me? Yes, it is. I don't want to burn my hand on the stove. Mom says I'll burn myself if I touch it. Cause it's hot. Cause she just cooked something on it. I'm going to keep my hands away from the stove, you know, um, things like that. So explanation is super important. Encouragement. Now encouragement sometimes gets mixed up with praise. Sometimes we like to compliment our children with praise by saying, I like what you just did. I like that dress on you. I like your hair today. I like the way that you handled this. And that's nice, but it makes it about you and what you like and what you want. I want my kids to develop their own moral authority inside themselves. And so I want them to be focusing on what they want and what they like. And then I can celebrate that with them. Right. So encouragement is more like, I'm going to help give you the confidence. I'm going to validate you and I'm going to celebrate with you. So that's more of what encouragement is like, what a great job you've done. Um, you used a lot of colors. You tried something new. You really worked hard on that. I can recognize and see like that's different from praise and making it more about you and what you like and how they've pleased you. 
Yeah. So there's, there's a difference there. I liked how you used the drawing analogy in your YouTube video where you talked about, you could say, oh, you just drew a bird for the first time. You haven't ever done that before. How was that experience? And asking them questions about that, or you used a lot of different colors. This is a very colorful picture. Tell me what inspired you to use all of these different colors or just asking them more questions so that they can tell you more about their thinking process and what their experiences were like and helping validate for them that they stepped outside of the box and they tried something new or that their hard work has paid off in some way or another Mm -hmm. and that you recognize that. And like you said, celebrating that instead of praising it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how much does that make them want to go and do more things Mm -hmm. like that, that they enjoy when they've got somebody on their team who's supporting and encouraging them? Mm -hmm. So that's what we want for them. Uh, The next E is empathy. So uh, I think this is one of the hardest things for us as post-Mormons or post-fundamentalists, post-evangelicals, is that we were taught that what love looks like, we find out now, like, wait a second, that's not really love. And so I've kind of dropped the word love for my vocabulary, except when I tell my kids, I love you, but I don't use it a whole lot because that term has so much baggage to it that we were taught like, oh, we love the sinner, but we hate the sin. We love gay people, but we just can't advocate for them. That's not really love, is it? It sounds more abusive. And so I think a better term is empathy, really being able to put yourself in another person's shoes. And how do we get there? How do you get that? By being curious, by asking, by listening to a person's experience and validating that. And that's how we arrive at empathy. That's how we can have empathy for other people. And what I really want for my kids is to have their circle of empathy grow and grow and grow until they're able to understand more and more people, more and more different perspectives, more and more different kinds of life experiences. So I don't want to say we teach our kids love because that gets kind of messed up, but we teach them empathy. Let's put ourselves in other people's shoes and see what it's like to be them. Honestly, like you just answered a huge question for me. We had this whole big debate this past week with everything going on in the LDS church with the Jeffrey R. Holland talk at BYU where love got thrown around a lot um, Mm -hmm. in family circles and in friend circles. It got thrown around a lot. And I was trying to make sense of why that word was triggering me so much. And you Mm -hmm. just hit the nail on the head. There is so much baggage that has to do with this sort of manipulative love that love's hung as kind of a carrot over your head. Mm -hmm. As long as you conform, as long as you do what we ask you to do, you can be you, but like be you quietly, please. And then you're loved and you're accepted and acknowledged. That's what I hear when I hear love the person, hate the sin. Mm -hmm. Is this kind of, we love you and we see you and we accept you as long as you're falling into this box that we've created for you. And so Mm -hmm. I love that you've moved that from the word love to empathy because empathy is a completely different thing. You cannot Mm -hmm. empathize with someone while rejecting them. You cannot empathize with someone while you're building a wall between their experience and yours. Mm -hmm. Those walls have to come down. You have to be vulnerable with one another. You have to be open to listening to their experience and really feeling what it would be like to be them. And then connecting with yourself to some 
emotion that you've had before that is mm-hmm. similar to be yes. able to understand. Yeah. Yeah. Or even at the end of the day, to be able to say, like my son said to me, I don't understand why, but I see that this is hard for you and I'm sorry. Yeah. And that's huge. And that can be a really, really good and powerful placeholder until we're able to have empathy for someone. Absolutely. And even just being able to acknowledge that I have no idea what this would be like, Yes, but I'm so glad you're sharing your experience with me and I'm here with you and I want to sit with you and I want to understand. Yes, absolutely. That brings us to our final E and that is engagement. And this means that we engage our kids as part of the team, like what you were talking about earlier, where we're going to sit down and we're going to say, like, it doesn't work for me to have the toilets be messy all the time. I just I can't live like that. We engage our kids in problem solving, like how can we all meet what we all want? Right. How can we address this? And everybody walks away happy from this. When we get our kids buy-in, that's just so important. And this starts when they're little, you know, maybe they can help decide what we're going to have for dinner or what's going to be on the menu. And as they grow, they get to have a more and a more and a more active part in family decision-making processes. Yeah. And I love that you said a Mm buy-in because I was a sixth grade teacher for two years trying to decide if I wanted to be a teacher or not. And I found that when the students help create the rules, they are much more likely to hold themselves and others in the classroom accountable to those rules than if they just came in and I said, these are the rules and we're following them. Absolutely. And it works the same way in our families. Same with consequences too. I think kids are more likely to follow through and not give you such a hard time, not have such a big meltdown or feel like they're resentful of something or feel like they're being treated unfairly when they have buy-in and they are engaged in the process of figuring out what consequences are going to be as well. Yeah. For sure. Kids like being a part of the process. They like understanding why things happen the way they do and they like being a part of the process. There is one thing I wanted to bring up as you were speaking There was a story you shared in one of your YouTube videos, and I don't mind if you don't share the story, but it talked about allowing our kids the opportunity to answer questions for themselves about why values are important to them. So Mm -hmm. you might bring up why something might be amoral or maybe not in line with their moral values that they already hold, Mm -hmm. and then allowing them to get curious and have time to answer the questions of what they already know is right. And so Mm -hmm. I didn't know if you had something that you wanted to say about that and about allowing kids that opportunity to really get curious with themselves and answer those questions for themselves. Yeah, I'd like to. So like we talked about before with children developing this moral accountability, sense of ethics inside themselves reliably and on time, regardless of whether a family is religious or non-religious or whatever kind of religion they are, as long as there's not any indoctrination getting in the way. So what we find is that adults, just like children, we all know what's right and wrong right? It's, it's so just assumed that we all know what's right and wrong that in a court of law, let's say, that's usually not a very good defense. Like, well, this person can't be held accountable because they just didn't know what was right or wrong, right? That's rarely, rarely ever held up as an actual excuse. It's just given we all know what's right and wrong, regardless of that person's upbringing. The question is then, 
why don't we always do what's right? And part of that boils down to being able to verbalize within ourselves and with other people why something is right. For example, um, my kid might be cheating on a test at school and feel like, well, it's not hurting anybody. I'm not harming anyone. But I think deep down inside, they know that's not right. That's not moral. And if we can just have a conversation about it, I think they'd be able to then dig down deep and verbalize why that's not okay. And once they can verbalize it to themselves or to someone else, that then that gives them more confidence and more power in being able to actually do the right thing. But it starts with being able to verbalize why it's the right thing to do, not just what the right thing to do is. And so as we're talking with our kids, my advice is going to be don't patronize them by asking them like, is this right? Or is this wrong? You know, and they know that they already know what is right or wrong. So instead ask them open-ended questions about why do you think this is not an okay thing to do and give them the time, let them have the space and ability to answer that on their own. So again, it doesn't feel like this is an authoritarian thing. This is them figuring it out, giving them this life skill that they're going to need for when they leave your house to be able to verbalize the why behind what they do and the why behind what is right. I think that's helpful because in both households, whether it's authoritarian or authoritative, both can say what the right thing is, whether it is yes. actually the right thing or not, what they've been taught or what they understand the right thing to be. But it takes that curiosity again that we were talking about. It takes that ability to question and to really critically think to get down to why is this a moral thing for me to do or an amoral thing for me to do. It reminds me of a conversation I just had with my 14-year-old. We just had a difficult week with homework and we sat down and I asked him what his values were. I said, what, you know, what kind of student do you want to be? What kind of person do you want to be at school? And left him to think about that for a little bit and to write down words that came to mind for him, like what words come to mind for you? And I ask you what kind of person you want to be at school. And then when we came back and looked at that, I said, is your behavior with your homework falling in line with your values? And he was able to kind of sit with that for a bit. And then we were able to even have a conversation of, is your behavior helping you get closer to your goals or is it bringing you further away from your goals? And helping him see like, this isn't what mom and dad want for you. This is actually what you want for yourself. And you're kind of disobeying your own inner guidance and harming your own self by taking away what's important to you. Like talking about natural consequences for a high schooler, if you don't do your homework during the week, you end up spending your entire weekend doing homework. And he hated that. I was like, is this what you wanted? Was this the outcome you wanted? And it was just really cool to ask him questions and to see him get curious with himself. And that was way more powerful than any time in the past when I've been like, okay, you didn't do this. So this is what is going to mm -hmm. happen now. It was just, okay, you didn't do this. So what are your options and what falls in alignment with your values and what you want to have happen? 
Right. Right. It's so much more powerful to have that intrinsic motivation than to have this external kind of forces working on you. It's just, it's so much more meaningful, so much more powerful. It really gives them that sense of autonomy too, which is huge. Kids need to have a good sense of autonomy in order to thrive. Absolutely. And on that note, is there anything else you would want parents to know or any advice you would want to give them or any hope or encouragement you would want to give them as we're wrapping up and sending people on their way to go parent their children with curiosity and with empathy? Yeah, absolutely. So if you're anything like me at the beginning of this journey, you just feel like you are falling and you're flailing your arms and legs, panicking, right? So my advice is going to be don't panic take a deep breath. You can do this and you can do it way better than you ever did before. You're going to be great. Absolutely. Love that. If I could add just one thing, it's your kids don't want perfect parents. If you're going from an authoritarian style to an authoritative (laughs) style, you're going to go back and forth a little bit because you're unlearning old patterns and relearning a new pattern in all of my work with clients, in all of my work with myself and my husband and my kids, we don't want perfect parents. We want empathic and accountable parents. And that's it. Absolutely. Yeah. Don't worry if you're, if you feel like, but my kids won't think that I know everything anymore. They already know. They already know (laughs) that you don't know everything. So just come clean about it and let them know. Let's just bring it out in the open. Absolutely. Oh, I have really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much, Rachel. This has been eye-opening for me. I had two like big light bulb moments <laughs> while we were in this conversation. And I know that the listeners had several light bulb moments themselves and it gave them hope and comfort and guidance about how they can use their own inner knowing and their own value systems to parent their children and create more empathic, altruistic, ethical people, both as adults, those of us who are deconstructing and becoming ethical people ourselves and Mm -hmm. the children that we're raising as well. So thank you for that. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on here. This was such a delightful conversation. Thank you, Terry. Oh, you're so welcome. You guys, if you can't get enough of Rachel and you want more of her content, I highly recommend that you go to her YouTube channel, post-Mormon parenting or to her Instagram or her TikTok. There is good content all over the place. She has it on Facebook as well. Go check her out. Consume the content. She's going to point you to all different kinds of great resources, good books you can read, other podcasts you can listen to. I know a lot of you are walking and working out while you're listening to these podcasts or driving while you're listening to these podcasts. So she'll give you tons of information that you guys can listen to while you're doing all of these wonderful things in your life and help us all to become the parents that I think we wished we had growing up and that we want our children to have as well. So thank you for joining me and I can't wait to see you next week.